Welcome to Carefully Examining the Text. And today we look together at Psalm 55. Psalm 55 is longer than some of the psalms that we have been dealing with in this section. And so we're going to break it up in its reading. Psalm 55 begins for the choir director on stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Now, you notice that the heading of Psalm 55 is the same as the first of the heading of Psalm 54. Psalm 54 goes on to add a historical circumstance in David's life. This, Psalm 55, does not do. Verse 1 through 8. Give ear, O my prayer, <coughs> excuse me, give ear to my prayer, O God. And do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Salah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. The first two verses use four imperatives as David is pleading with God to hear his cry and answer his prayer. In verse 2 and verse 3, he expresses his emotional anguish, his enemy's opposition and his emotional anguish. And this continues in verses 4 and 5. And we'll see when we get to verse 6 that he wishes that he could just get away from it all. But I particularly want to call attention to verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. The word that is translated here, hide yourself, is a word that is used in the Old Testament in the following passages. Deuteronomy 22, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4, and Isaiah 58, verse 7. Again, Deuteronomy 22, verse 1, 3, and 4, and then in Isaiah 58 and verse 7. This idea of not hiding oneself is given in commands of God to men, that when they see their enemies, ox or donkey, going astray, they are not to hide themselves, but they are to deliver him, to take care of it, and to save it for its master when it returns. Now, this is the point I want to make. If God commanded men not to hide himself from the stranger in need, from the person whose animal has gone astray, don't hide yourself. How much more can we be assured that God will not hide himself? And David is begging God to do 
to not hide himself, as God tells man not to hide himself when he can be of help to his foe. He, he's begging God to come to his aid. He is begging God to help him in his distress. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. He describes his emotional state as being one of restlessness and complaint. And he says the enemy is bringing down trouble upon him in verse 3. In verse 4, his heart is in anguish, and the terrors of death have fallen upon him. He is stressing his emotional state and how he is overwhelmed because of the difficulties that he faces. And he can find no relief except to beg God to be with him and to beg God to hear his cry and to answer his pleas. In verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. He wishes he could just escape his whole situation. He says in verse 7, I would, I would wander far away and lodge in the wilderness. Often in the Bible, the wilderness is a barren, desolate place. But it's a place generally where no man dwells, as Job 38 verse 26 shows. And this passage tells us he would rather be away from the city, which he's about to describe as corrupt in verses 9 through 11. He would rather be away from the city and away from humanity than to be encompassed by evil and wickedness. And he longs to pray. He longs to go to this wilderness to be secluded from the evil of city life. You see a similar type picture in Revelation chapter 12 of the wilderness being used as a hiding place. And you remember when Elijah boldly confronted the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings 19, Jezebel says that you're going to be like one of these prophets tomorrow. And Elijah fled. Sometimes it's a great temptation to simply flee, to run away, to go to the wilderness where no man dwells and to get away from it all. But sometimes we have to face our difficulties. Most of the time we have to face our difficulties. And he longs, though, that he could just have wings to fly away. Jeremiah wishes that he could be removed from his adulterous people in Jeremiah 9 in verses 2 and 3. And he says in verse 8, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. In verse 9, Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her, uh, upon her walls, in iniquity and mischief in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. If you remember our discussions of Psalm 46 and Psalm 48, as they projected a wonderful image of a city 
whose builder and maker was God. What a contrast Psalm 55 verses 9 through 11 are to that picture. Here, this city is filled with iniquity and mischief and destruction and oppression and deceit. And it mentions the walls of the city where the wicked prowl day and night. Walls of the city are meant to protect from the enemy without, but the walls of the city do no good when the enemy is full of destruction and corruption within. They do no good. And he asked God that God would confuse them in verse 9, that God would divide their tongues. There seems to be an allusion here to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where God confounded man's language and made it impossible for them to communicate in the acceleration of evil. God stopped evil in its tracks by depriving man of the ability to communicate. And so here he asks God to do the same thing. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. But the writer, he has discussed his enemies. He has discussed their voice in verse 3. But now we see in verses 12 through 14 that it wasn't just an enemy who had opposed him, but it was those that he counted as friends. In verse 12, it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who's exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, notice that he addresses this man in second singular um, in a second singular pronoun, it's you, you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together, and we walked in the house of God in the throng. It's a companion. It is a familiar friend. It is a close friend. This particular word, familiar friend, in here is the root for the Hebrew word to know, which often refers to the most intimate of relationships. If there's anyone the psalmist felt that he knew, anyone David felt he could have confidence in, it was this friend. And how terrible to place your confidence in one who stabs you in the back. That's what? David describes. And he says in verse 15, he prays that judgment may fall upon him. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. Let them go down alive to Sheol. This sounds a lot like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16, verses 30 through 33. When Moses said, if these men, if these men are acting in rebellion to God and the Lord takes their life, may the Lord open up the ground and swallow them and they go down alive in the Sheol. It may be that the psalmist is begging not only that God judge these wicked men by taking their lives, but that God judge them in such a way that their sin will be evident to all.
let them go down to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling. No evil dwells with God, according to Psalm 5 and verse 4. In the city where David reigns as king, in Psalm 101, evil is not to dwell there, but that is not the environment that these people have created in this city. But what is David to do? In the midst of a wicked city, in verses 9 through 11, in the midst of a betrayal by a friend, in verses 12 through 14, what is he to do? Well, he determines in verse 16, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. He's going to put his confidence in God. He's going to put his confidence in him. As for me, I'll call upon him, and he will save. And his calling upon God is going to be perpetual. We've seen the sin in the city was perpetual in verse 10. Day and night they go around her up on her walls. But David says in verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. In the midst of his trials, in the midst of being betrayed by a friend, he's going to continue to call upon God because he believes that God will save him in verse 16. He believes in verse 18 that God will redeem his soul in peace from the battle. For many strive with me. In verse 19, God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. The Bible describes God as one enthroned from of old. God has always been king. God will always be king. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He sits enthroned from of old. When verse 19 in the New American Standard describes those in whom there is no change, is this describing God in whom there is no change? As Malachi 3.6 and James 1.17 show, or is this describing these wicked men who never change, who never turn, who never repent, and who do not fear God, as verse 19 says? There has been a lot of emphasis in these last few psalms about people not having the proper attitude toward God. In Psalm 52 and verse 7, we see some who did not make God their refuge, but instead trusted in wealth. In Psalm 53, 4, we, we see some who did not call upon God, which is in stark contrast to David here in 55, 16. In 54, in verse 3, we read of people who did not set God before them. And here, in 55, 19, people who do not fear God. But in verse 20, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. Again, it seems to be a description of the betrayer who was described in verses 12 through 14. 
In verse 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The words of his enemy were weapons that were used to cut and dice and slice. And we'll see this quite repeatedly through this section of the Psalms. In Psalm 57, verse 4, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Again, what is David to do in the midst of this? Verse 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Do those words sound familiar? They seem to be quoted in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Cast your burden upon the Lord. Here, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. The word for sustain is the word used for Joseph caring for his brothers in Genesis 45 and verse 11. And it's used for God sustaining him. God will sustain me, and God will never allow the righteous to be shaken. The word shaken that's used here was used in verse, a form of this word was used in verse 3, and it was translated there, they bring down trouble upon me. In verse 3, the wicked are bringing down trouble upon David in an attempt to shake him, to disturb him. But here in Psalm 55, 22, David will not be shaken because his God is unshakable. God will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Let us stand on that solid ground. In verse 23, God is addressed with a personal pronoun, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I trust in you. God will bring down the wicked to destruction, something the Bible affirms in Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. God will ultimately bring down the wicked to destruction. He will bring them down. And what David continues to do is to trust in the Lord. How does this psalm fit Jesus? The Septuagint in Psalm 55, 4 says, My heart is in anguish. Or, or that's the New American Standard translation. My heart is in anguish. The Septuagint translation of this, the word that's translated anguish in 55, 4, is translated troubled in the Septuagint. And it's the same word Jesus uses in John 12, 27 and John 13, 21 to describe his own condition. Jesus is troubled in anguish. And just as the psalmist wishes that he could make wings like a dove and fly away, so does our Savior. In John, in, in Luke 12, verses 49 and 50, Luke 12, verses 49 and 50, 
The Bible says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. In these verses, you see that Jesus wishes that all his trials and all his troubles were over. If you've ever longed to flee from your difficulties, know that our Savior longed for his troubles to be over. And if you've ever known the betrayal of a friend, as David describes it in verses 12 through 14 and verses 20 through 21, if you've ever known that kind of betrayal by a friend, Jesus knew it at the hand of Judas. My trusted friend has lifted his heel against me. Those were the words of Psalm 41, 9, and they're quoted in John 13, verse 18, and applied to Judas. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that Jesus knows the betrayal of a friend. He experienced the anguish. He wished he could get away. He knows the betrayal of a friend. But the word that is used for heard in Psalm 55, 2 in the, in the Greek translation is used of God hearing Christ's prayer in Hebrews 5. And verse 7, yes, God heard his prayer. God raised him from the dead and demonstrated his glory. There's so much more that could be said about Psalm 55, but I do appreciate you listening to our podcast. May it bless you and strengthen you. May it strengthen you particularly if you need to look to Jesus in your time of crisis. Thank you.